Welcome to the Southern Steve. Southern Steve is a public health and social justice podcast that centers the voices of community leaders in the Southern United States. Conversations highlight innovative approaches to unapologetic leadership, meaningful partnerships, and thriving communities. My name is Nicole Elenoff, and I am joined by my incredible hostess with the mostest, Bianca Ward. Hi, Bianca. Hey, Nicole. It's our first time hosting together. I am excited. I think this is a different kind of fun energy, different from um, hosting with Isaiah or Torian. And this gives us time to shine. And that's at the end of the day, what I like to do. We're going to shine on with our glasses on point. You know, I'm all about a spectacle. A spectacle with the rusticle. (laughs) Okay. All right. (laughs) Quick shout out about NASDAD. This podcast is brought to you by NASDAD, a nonprofit, nonpartisan public health organization in Washington, D.C. Learn more at NASDAD.org. We are joined by an incredible guest today. And this person is the one and only Rose Hornado, Linkage and Testing Specialist at Metro Inclusive Health. Going to read a little bit about Rose's bio, and then we're going to welcome her on. Rose Hornado has worked in the field of human services since 1994, gaining experience and knowledge in community organization, recruiting clients and volunteers, public speaking, management, overseeing daily operations of state-funded programs, supervising staff, grant writing, developing curricula, and meditation, mediation and crisis management. Rose's drive and passion for community is rooted in advocacy and equity for all. She has been a proponent, proponent of social justice healing for most of her life. Rose has been a Florida resident since 2005 when she moved from Massachusetts with her two teenage children. Since arriving to Florida, Rose has worked as a training coordinator with juvenile justice and as a housing case manager for the homeless and people living with HIV AIDS. Currently, Rose is with Metro Inclusive Health as a linkage and testing specialist. In her capacity at Metro, Rose works with same gender loving men of color and anyone who identifies as trans or non-binary, linking them to physical and mental health services. She continues her social justice work in St. Petersburg, coordinating efforts with local Black and Brown-led organizations to empower and support communities in their fight for justice and equity. Wow. Rose, it is so good to have you on. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. You know, just reading that bio, it was another refresher as to why you were invited to participate in the Southern Steep, you know, as we were sharing, like, we really are excited about lifting up and speaking to community leaders in the South. And the work that you have been doing in the South has been like incredible and definitely noted. Um, So it's so good to have you. Thanks. So we want to know a little bit more about you. I know we just went through that whole bio, but can you tell us a little bit more about your work with Metro Inclusive Health? Can you tell us about, you know, yeah, tell us it all. Yeah, so I uh, was super excited to join Metro uh, and have the opportunity to work in this program. It's actually a SAMHSA-funded program for targeted capacity um, interventions. And 
so our program is called Project Care, and it is uh, specifically targeted to same gender loving men of color, anyone who trans identifies or anybody who's non-binary or non-gender uh, conforming. And the beauty of the program is that we're able to offer free mental health services for people who are uninsured. So um, when I saw that and I saw that it was specifically targeted to the black and brown communities, I needed to be able to support this. So to have this opportunity to work not only with Metro, which is an amazing organization here in St. Petersburg, the Tampa Bay area, but specifically to be able to break down barriers and help folks access mental health um, was something that I really, really wanted to be a part of. Mental health stigma is so prevalent. And how has it been going in this program, um, really centering mental health? Yeah, um, we've had, you know, some successes. Um, obviously, there's a lot of uh, difficulties in overcoming some of those barriers, right, because of the intersectionalities of those identities. When it comes to the Black and Brown community, um, Trying to find folks who are same gender loving um, isn't necessarily the easiest, um, as opposed to you know working with non-black and brown communities where we can do traditional outreach. And so we've had to kind of think outside the box and be a little bit more creative in regards to how uh, we're trying to recruit and get folks into the program. Um, it's, we're in our third year now, and uh, we've been able to reach, I believe a little over 100, 150 folks in the Tampa Bay area. Um, and many of them have actually been successfully discharged from the program. So they've done some great self-work and gotten into mental health care. We, uh, the program not only does one-on-one -on -one therapy, but it offers uh, groups around trauma-based inform and information, sexual health, recovery, socialization, coping skills, um, so we try to do as many wraparound services as possible. So it's been it's been really exciting. So one of the things I kind of want to touch on that you just mentioned um, prior to coming to NASDAQ, I worked in community for a long time, um, specifically black and brown, same gender loving men and recruitment. As you said, like recruitment can be tough um, in terms of how to. Um, find folks, engage them in a way that's meaningful and intentional. Um, and I love that you all are doing this specifically around mental health, because as Nicole said, there's there's a lot of stigma associated with that. What have been some of your, what are some of your pro tips or recruitment methods that you all have found that have been um, successful in terms of engagement and retention? Um, I think for us, that some of the most effective ways have been to um, have some peers on staff. So, you know, um, we have gentlemen who are working with us who are men of color and they are same gender loving um, and they're very open about their struggles and where they've come from and their achievements. And so they can walk that walk and it helps us be able to connect with a lot of folks. Um, also our team is very diverse and very, very comfortable in regards to working with this population and working with this, these topics. And so I think that's really important too, um, that uh, I remember the very first time I sat down at a group and it was um, all gentlemen. And, you know, I present as female. Um, I myself am non-binary, but they didn't know that. 
So the first thing they did was challenge me as to whether or not, you know, a female would be able to teach sexual health to a group of men. And they quickly learned how comfortable I am with that. <laughs> I love it. I I love it. I think especially those those group dynamics, um, that group support, we know um, how much of a benefit it can be, but also some of those those challenges that, that come along with it as well. So kudos to you. Well, and I'm sure you have a really good time together in the groups. Like, I've had an opportunity to see you facilitate before, and it is definitely a really good time. <laughs> we do. We do have, um, because I really feel that um, it should be engaging, right? And it should be sometimes a little fun. And um, Nicole, you know me, I'm, I'm a huge proponent of folks being really comfortable and confident and speaking about their sexual health. And so that's what I do. I put it right on at the forefront. I let them know how comfortable I am talking about sexual health. I'm very transparent. Um, I kind of consider myself as a pseudo peer as well. So I share my past experiences with them and that helps me connect as well with a lot of our clients and bond with them over um, similarities. And so um, they do open up and we've had some really powerful, impactful conversations in those groups. Creating spaces that are affirming and overall like welcoming is an act of resilience. And so I guess, can you speak a little bit about that? How is, you know, you all are creating affirming space. You know, this whole conversation is really centering about meeting the folks where they are at and like <laughs> affirming them at every step of the way. And so my question to you is like how, what's the connection between these affirming support networks and like overall health and well-being? Um, I think the benefit of working here at Metro um, for me in the last two years has been um, that Metro has actually walked the walk. You know, they um, state themselves as an inclusive agency and they offer over a hundred, you know, different types of programs and they actually back that up. And so for me to be able to express in those groups that, yes, you face certain stigmas and yes, you face certain obstacles, but we're you know open and receptive to find out how do we can overcome those type of things. We're having those conversations um, and we are breaking down barriers. And so being able to not only break those stigmas within the smaller groups, but then also for them to be able to carry that message out into the black and brown communities in the Tampa Bay area, um, is helping us really impact and connect with folks. So hopefully that will um, continue to address, you know, being able to get folks connected with care. And just in terms of, of the amazing work that you all are doing, um, but I just kind of want to back up a little bit and, and hear more about, about yeah. you and what brought, what brought you into this work. I think we all, we all have a why and how we how we get to where we are today. So what, yeah. what brought you into this work? And second, I'm I'm good for a two-parter. <laughs> also, what keeps you connected to to your why and your purpose here? Sure. Um, I was 26, newly divorced with two small children when I went back to school, and I knew that I needed. To do something, I had all I had was a high school diploma, and I was working, but I wasn't making enough to, to you know make ends meet. And so I was a business major, and I met a really, really who became a dear friend of mine, uh, this gentleman named Wayne, 
um, who was in social services. And he kept saying to me, this is, this is a field that you would love. And I was like, listen, I am a single mother, woman of color. I need to make some money. I need to take care of my kids. Facts. Um, <laughs> so he um, said to me, well, you know, if you start volunteering, it looks really good on your resume. And, you know, employers would like that. They'll make, they'll make it look well-rounded. And I was like, oh, okay, that sounds good. And that's all it took. I started volunteering with a nonprofit organization called Broughton Fights Back in the city that I used to live in. And I just fell in love with this. Um, I've just been really blessed to have a career in something that I have a strong passion for. And I know that that's a blessing because not that many people get that. And so I thank Wayne every day <laughs> in my mind for opening that door and pushing me through it because um, I've never looked back. And so um, I love, love, love what I do. Uh, I don't know how to shut it off. <laughs> and so I think that's really what's kept me going. Um, I'm looking at, I'm coming up to like 30 years of working in this field, which I know I'm super lucky for. Um, and it's, it's, it's huge because a lot of people burn out really quickly. Um, it is a field that takes a lot, you know, a lot of dedication, um, and, and, you know, if you're in it just for the checks, you're not going to last. Um, if you don't have a little bit of crazy in you, you're not going to last. <laughs> yes. Or so, a lot of crazy. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I, I'm just, I love what I do and I'm really, really lucky and blessed for that. So that's, that's why I'm still here. And I love that in 30 years is, um, is an achievement in itself. And, and you mentioned something that I think is very true in terms of burnout, um, especially in, in helping professions, um, professions where we are literally saving our lives and the lives of our community. What have you done to prevent that burnout? What, what have you done to sustain you through this 30 years? Sure. Uh, therapy. <laughs> yes. Can you, can you yes. say that again a little louder yes. for the people in the back? <laughs> um, there, uh, again, I love therapy. To me, it's like I, I go back and every time I need a little tune-up um, because I, I think that um, there is a stigma attached to it, right? And even when I started going to therapy early in my 20s, uh, there were even family members that were trying to discourage me because there's that stigma attached to it that, you know, you don't tell your business outside of your household. And um, I come from a, a Latin background, and so there's a lot of stuff that's attached to that culture where it's a lot of secrecy. And so um, I had to kind of push past that and really understand that I was worth putting some work into. Um, I had a lot of trauma that I needed to heal from and I recognized that as well. And I was lucky enough to have two small children that were my incentive. You know, they were my driving force to get better. And so um yeah, therapy has definitely helped me. And I, like I said, I go back whenever I need it. And then I've also incorporated lots of different things like uh, exercising and meditation and um, just, you know, taking, you know, taking care of my family and spending time with my loved ones. And so however self-care can work for me, I, I am huge, hugely, hugely active about that because I think that's what sustains me. That is all. You are literally over here speaking all of my love languages. So thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, therapy is so huge. And I, I th think it's, um, oof, 
Yes, literally every everything you're saying. I, I, I talk about therapy quite a bit um, at work to friends, colleagues, anybody who will listen about the benefits um, that folks don't even know are there until you're in it. And so, yeah, um, good for you for seeing that importance for yourself. Thanks, thanks. And, and you know, I try to be like a, a walking testimony to that with, with my clients as well. Um, because, you know, again, we're working with uh, a black and brown community that we know historically has a lot of distrust of the medical fields and, you know, validly so. Um, so you have to kind of overcome those type of things and then being able to make sure that they understand that, you know, you're not necessarily telling your secrets to anyone. No one's going to blab your stuff. No one's going to gossip it. It's completely safe. Um I love that our team here is so diverse as far as our behavior health uh, group here, because we do have an an eclectic group of um, licensed professionals who I think they've pretty much seen everything you can think of. (laughs) And so they know how to handle all kinds of different things. And so, um, and Metro is actually very, very engaged in um, trying to make sure that they hire folks who reflect our clientele as well. So, you know, when, when we tell them, you know, we need more people of color, you know, doing mental health work, they are looking and trying to recruit those type of folks, you know. So I, I love that there is that, you know, working together in that progress here. You know, so much and a lot of this has to be intentional and being able to speak your truth is a testimony to like what you've been doing as far as your own journey and then being able to share it and shout it from the rooftops really is inspiring to so many folks. Um, You know, there's a lot of people that might be on the fence about if going to a counselor is right for them and hearing someone share their experiences. Oh, and it wasn't that bad. You know, that really makes it a big deal and really can be the nudge that someone needs. Yeah. Um, I'm sorry. Oh no, go ahead. (laughs) Well, I was just going to, I was, as you were speaking, I just remembered of um, an interaction that I had just this past Saturday, we were doing uh, an outreach event in the Childs Park area, which is uh, a predominantly black neighborhood. And uh, we were working with another local organization and she had her street outreach team together. And one of the people in the street outreach team, um, I think presented kind of non-binary. Um, once I started talking about Project Care, they came right over and they were like, listen, uh, do y'all do like anger management kind of work? <laughs> and I was like, yeah, you know what? Let's have a little conversation about that. You know, because the minute I started talking about therapy, I could kind of see their eyes get a little guarded. And I said, let me just explain to you what happened with my experience. Um, and I told her, um, told them um, that as a child, I, I did experience a, a huge trauma in regards to sexual abuse at the hand of somebody who was supposed to be a protector. But as I got older, I got bigger. And at one point I started fighting back. And in my 14 year old mind, when I started fighting back and they stopped sexually abusing me, I equated that with safety. So now in my mind, I'm equating violence and anger with safety for me. And it didn't make sense but I went with it, right? And so for many, many years, I had I was living in that dysfunction and I was angry and I was lashing out. Through therapy, I was able to make the connection and be like, well, dang, okay, now I understand where that's coming from. And maybe I can process these feelings a little bit better. And so 
I've been able to build really great coping skills. I still get triggered. Nicole, you know me. (laughs) But I know how to process those feelings in a more productive way now. And so when I explained that to them, they were just like, do you have a card? I can call you. (laughs) Maybe we can. I said, absolutely. And, you know, hopefully, you know, I'll be able to follow up with them shortly. But it's those connections. It it has to be one-on-one and you have to break it down a lot of times. And you do have to kind of just be that poster child because, If I can do it, I'm no stronger, smarter or better than you. So certainly you can make the effort, you know, and you never know where that could take you. It's really about those relationship building. You know, you helped that person by sharing your story and building a relationship with this individual. And, you know, a person taught me a long time ago that before the public health can happen, you need to develop a relationship. And I know through your work, like before coming to Metro, organizing outreach activities and street outreach was a way to, you know, connect with the community and build that relationship. Can you tell us a little bit about how, you know, what does outreach look like for Rose right now? What, you know, what's been going on for street outreach? Um, Well, thanks to COVID. (laughs) This past year has been a little uh, on a standstill, obviously, and we've we've had to get a little bit more creative in our outreach. So we've been using a lot more social media platforms and things like that. Um, now that we're learning more about how to navigate through COVID, um, and thankfully I work at a healthcare facility, so they have all these precautions being put in place now. And um, we're being allowed to go out with the prevention and sexual health team when they go out and do outreach. Uh, We have a mobile unit out there. We bring uh, tables out. So we have a six foot perimeter around us. We, uh, instead of administering the instant tests ourselves, we're doing the home kits. So we're actually kind of telehealth with them in the mobile unit. So they're sitting in one room and we're sitting in another and we're walking them through the testing process. And we are trying to collaborate a little bit more with other folks because we know that if they're struggling and we're struggling, we can maybe work together and uh, reach folks, which is what we did this past Saturday. We worked with uh, a local organization called the Burke Cares and we did some outreach with them. Um, So that's kind of what it's looking like right now. Um, I still have... Uh, this idea on the back burner to start a street outreach team out here. (laughs) I've already started talking to several folks here at the agency about what that would look like. Um, Because similarly to Central Florida, there is an injection drug using population here. um, And although the numbers aren't necessarily all that high in regards to HIV exposures and transmissions, there is a tick, there is an uptick, and we have to address that. And, and I am just, I've always been somebody who has been a supporter of working with the most marginalized populations because they're the ones who get ignored the most and marginalized the most. And so um, there is a syringe exchange program happening out here now, which I absolutely love. And Metro is working collaboratively with them. They um, actually come to our site in Tampa every Tuesday night from six to nine. And so 
uh, myself and a couple of other folks in the prevention and sexual health team here at Metro have been kind of brainstorming as to help them do better outreach, find folks, you know, get folks to the, the services that they're providing. Um, you know, we were trying to do the same thing when we were in Orlando and we had an amazing collaborative team of like six different agencies, including DOH and, you know, several other agencies that we were out there once or twice a month at night, walking the streets on the trail where the girls were, you know, um, and it's just, it's exciting to me. It's exciting to be able to do something that's creative and maybe that isn't being done and being able to open a door to folks uh, that might not have that door open. You know, I, harm reduction's in my blood. That, that's what I live by um, and I'm extremely passionate about. And so I'm, I'm really, really about meeting people where they're at, no judgment, no coercion, like, what can we do to help you get better? You know, what does that look like to you? I am pretty sure that you are reading our minds, one, because you're definitely speaking to things that uh, one to make sure, you know, we asked you or talked about. But um, so let's let's kind of stay on the, the harm reduction um, syringe services programs piece just for just for a sec. Um what, talk a little bit about what harm reduction, what that, even what that term, what that practice means to you and how do you think it is um, shifting or changing also in the, in the midst of COVID or in the, in the work that you are hoping to do? Yeah, um, I was first trained in, in harm reduction in Massachusetts back in the late, early 90s, late 80s, early 90s. Um, and so the program that I ran up there for close to 10 years was based on harm reduction. And we worked with injection drug users. We worked with uh, sex workers. We worked with the homeless. We worked with LGBTQ runaways. Pretty much anybody that everyone else threw away was mine. And for nine and a half years, that was my baby. Um, and that gave me such an amazing foundation of knowledge for doing harm reduction work. Then uh, I moved here to Florida in 2005, and it was a little bit of a culture shock because harm reduction wasn't happening here then. <laughs> uh, I remember my first job in social services when I introduced myself and I said that that was my experience. I was literally like stopped in the sentence and said, we, we don't talk about harm reduction here. We do abstinence only. Right. And so I was like, okay. <laughs> right. Um, so, you know, here we are 15 years later and thank goodness harm reduction is now spreading all over Florida. You know, um, I think it's really, really important and crucial because as much as prevention works, you know, it does absolutely works for a lot of folks. It's not going to work for everyone. And harm reduction is an evidence-based intervention. It is proven to work. It is proven to show that if you meet someone where they're at and you work with them to progress how they see fit, they're going to continue to want to take good care of themselves. That's just the psychology behind it. You know, the more you take care of yourself, the better you feel about yourself, the more you want to take care of yourself. Um, I've always shared that one of the most powerful experiences I've ever had was helping somebody who had been shooting up heroin for over a decade and absolutely refused to wear short sleeve shirts because he had so many track marks. After a couple of years of working with him with um, safety kits and learning how to clean his syringes and clean his wounds, he was so proud to be able to rock a short sleeve shirt one summer. 
because his, you know, his wounds were clearing up and, you know, they weren't completely gone, but he felt better about himself, you know, and he continued on that work to the point where he finally ended up on methadone at the time. That was the only other alternative for folks. And he got into recovery. It took him probably about four or five years, Mm -hmm. um, which takes a little bit longer than maybe some other folks, but he never gave up because we didn't give up on him. And so, you know, that, that to me is just a testimony as to why harm reduction is so necessary because it saves lives. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, In terms of just what you were saying about just the difference between coming from Massachusetts to Florida and all of a sudden the things that that you couldn't talk about or or they weren't being talked about there um, kind of helps to shift some of our, our questions that, that we like to ask folks when they come on the podcast. Um, what do you love about the South? And now that you've been there for a while and have been doing the work and, and part of the, the community, what do you love about it? I, well, first and foremost, I love the, love, the weather here. <laughs> That's yes. why I moved here. Yeah. <laughs> yep. That's why I moved here. Um, but I think what I really, really, truly fell in love with was that it, um, I learned that a lot of the ideas that I had about the South weren't true. Um, I found amazing, amazing progressive minds in Florida that I really didn't think I'd come across, right? And um, Nicole being one of them. I was going to say the same thing. (laughs) Nicole right here, just (laughs) present and progressive. Go ahead. And so so that that to me just made me feel like, okay, I I don't feel so isolated and alone out here. I don't feel so crazy. but it did, it rejuvenated me. And then also um, seeing the need for that kind of work here, right? And so I was like, okay, I, I think I did all I could up north. Um, and and I'm, maybe I was drawn here for a reason, you know? So um, I'm, I'm here and I'm determined to stay here. I'm very stubborn. <laughs> so uh, I have a tendency to dig my heels in uh, when I feel challenged. And so... Yeah, I don't I don't see myself going anywhere anytime soon. You know, when you were talking about how harm reduction is now coming to Florida and more of these conversations are centered around harm reduction, the song looks like we made it. Look how far we've come. My baby like literally popped into my head because it's like, looks like we made it. Florida's now having these conversations decades after these northern states, but we're here. We're here. We're here now. I love that. And now that song is gonna be in my head and I will be humming it sporadically throughout the day (laughs) Um, what do you want to what do you want to see for the south or what are your hopes for the south as they can as it continues to kind of move in this direction um i would love to see you know the black and brown communities find a stronger voice um you know find their place at the tables whether it be politically socially you know um and make their place at the table, you know, where it's deserved, Um, have their voices heard, have, you know, some of these stigmas and stereotypes banished, you know, Um, and and not to say that up North is all that progressive and liberal. We have our own pockets of issues up North, but it just, um, it just did feel like it was almost coming into a different time Mm -hmm. (laughs) when I moved here, you know, um, 
even coming across some folks who are black and brown, who um, for me, it's almost like, okay, you were raised here. And so you're almost conditioned to respond a certain way. And it's a way that I'm not used to. Mm-hmm. Right. And so that was something that I kind of had to get used to, but I still talk about it and I still challenge it. Um, and hopefully I'm kind of planting seeds with some folks in their minds to maybe think about some stuff, you know, um, so we'll see. I don't know. I'm a rabble rouser. So. And we need more of you. <laughs> <laughs> I think I, I, I definitely believe that we are right where we're supposed to be. And we um, move and transition and make our way through life on the path that we are destined for. And so Florida needed Rose. <laughs> and, and, for real. And, really did. Yes. <laughs> and and yeah, to to be the rebel rouser, also to be the voice to support, to in, encourage and, and, and challenge folks to think differently. So I thank you. One courageous conversation at a time and, you know, planting the seeds and then your love continues to water. Um, you've put a lot of plants in Florida. <laughs> Hopefully, hopefully. <laughs> um, so how would people get in touch with you and your incredible programs? So uh, Metro obviously has its website, which is uh, www.metrotampabay.org. Um, all of our programs are pretty much listed and updated. Um, they're, you know, reflecting post-COVID timeframes now, and a lot of our stuff is offered virtually. Um I do want to make sure that everybody is aware that um, last year we started for Black History Month, we started what's called the Black and Empowered series, and we did a a brunch, extremely, extremely successful. Um, But this year, there's a whole committee of Black and Brown staff who have decided to do a year-long series. And so uh, we initiated the Black and Empowered series this past Monday, um, this week being, you know, the historically the week that Black History Month was, you know, enacted and celebrated, and so uh, we decided to recognize the February eighth as the kickoff. At the end of this month, we're doing uh, Black Social Justice, so it's a two-hour virtual event, and it's open to everyone. Um, the registration is on our website. And then moving forward, we're going to be doing things on topics about Black mental health, Black physical health. Um, We're going to be celebrating Black culture as far as music and literature. So every single month, we're going to be working on a different topic. And it's super exciting. I love that. I I read somewhere where it was like Black History Month is not just a month. It's just the anniversary. And we celebrate Mm -hmm. all year. (laughs) Yes. That that reminder and just great. I, I, I it's wonderful to hear how you all are incorporating that into to the work and your mission and and reaching community. Yeah, um, I'm excited. This conversation has been just what I needed today. So I want to thank you. I want to thank you for that. Um, as our first time meeting, it's really been great to hear your story, your journey, to hear your passion um, and your truth. So I thank you for um, coming on and being vulnerable with us and, and sharing your light. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you so much for inviting me. And I truly appreciate it. Um, it was wonderful getting to see Nicole again and getting to meet you, Bianca. 
Wonderful. Thank you so much, Rose. We appreciate you coming on. I feel like I, you know, you said it that this was the conversation you needed today, but I also that resonates with me as well. Yeah, I'm really glad that you have had the opportunity to meet someone that I used to work very closely with um, before Rose met or moved over to the Tampa Bay area. She was working in the Orlando area where I'm still based out of. Um, and I worked really closely with her. We did street outreach together. Um, we've done the smart ride together, which we're about to talk about in our Southern charm. Um, but you know, Bianca, it's been nice getting, having an opportunity for you to meet some folks that I, I guess would say I'm like from, you know, like I met Rose several years ago and she's part of my foundation too. So it's nice getting to share a little piece of that. I love it. Meeting your people. Mm-hmm. I like it's it. It's cute. It's nice. <laughs> Our Southern Charm today, we are highlighting the SMART Ride, which stands for the Southernmost HIV AIDS Ride. It got started in 2003, and it's a 165-mile ride from Miami to Key West, where 100% of all money raised goes directly to direct services in the state of Florida. Um, It's the only type of ride of its kind where they guarantee that 100% of all money raised goes directly to what it's being raised for. Uh, There are several different benefiting agencies of the Smart Ride, and those include AIDS Help in Monroe County, Pride Lines Miami-Dade, Broward House in Broward County, Metro Inclusive Health in Hillsborough, Pasco and Pinellas County, and then Miracle of Love based in Central Florida, and then lastly, Compass Community Center in the Palm Beach County area. Um, So not only does the Smart Ride raise all of these funds, but like we know both of us being from, you know, CBO backgrounds, we know that there's restricted dollars. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things that, I mean, not one of, the Smart Ride has done so much to help fill in the gaps that restricted dollars don't cover. So for instance, I know there was some individuals um, who, you know, maybe a family member passed away and they needed money to be able to bury their loved ones. The Smart Mm -hmm. Ride's been able to help get that person a plane ticket, maybe emergency housing taking place and none of the HOPWA providers are available. Smart Ride funds can help get an emergency motel stay for the night. Um, Smart Ride dollars has helped for extensive eye surgery that's not covered under Ryan White. It's helped create mobile unit programs within some of these nonprofit organizations. Um, And it's a good time. So it sounds it sounds amazing, not only in the impact. So when you said 165 miles, um, my back started to hurt. But <laughs> I think, but when I hear about uh, one, the importance of of money going directly to organizations, the the importance we know of unrestricted dollars and how that can really um, help and impact folks, that is huge. Um, fun fact: I do not know how to ride a bike. I have been on this planet for many years and do not know how to ride a bicycle. So if somebody has like a garage or a multi-purpose room that 
is low lit to teach me how to ride a bike because I don't want to do it in public, uh, please do so that I too can go down to Florida and get on this smart ride. You just it. created a whole, you just created a whole thing. This is the whole thing. I'm gonna, it is something that I am, I, I now have no shame. Once upon a time, I used to, something I would whisper, but now I am loud and proud in saying that I do not know how to ride a bike. Um, but I want to learn, but I want to do it like in a very private space so that when I fall, nobody is there to see me. And when you fall, we're going to help you get up. That's, and then that's you're going to fall again and it's going to be fine. Um, well, thank you all so much for joining us for this episode of The Southern Steep. I'm Nicole Elinoff. I'm Bianca Ward. Thank, thank you, you for, for listening. listening.